Well, uh, you know the air conditioning you can tell is a little bit not working in this part of the part of the building. Whatever that is. Uh, I just wanted to help you uh, get through this by telling you that in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, today it's 96 degrees. And in Baghdad, it's 114. So if you were doing church there, you'd be a little bit warmer. So I think we can get through it okay. Uh, we're continuing our march through the New Testament book of Romans this morning uh, in a Proof of Life series, we're calling it. So let me pray for our time and we'll get to it. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for these people that are here. Uh, we thank you for your word that tells us what we wouldn't know unless you shared it with us. We pray we would hear you, uh, that we'd be changed from our time with you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I think you've all heard stories of wacky people who uh, wanted something a little bit different, a little bit strange for their funerals. Uh, a guy named Lonnie Holloway uh, died at 90, was buried in his 1973 Pontiac Catalina. The guy on the screen is a Brit. And he requested that flowers that spelled out bastard be placed in the window of this hearse. Uh, he actually is a great guy. He was uh, wanting to act out his favorite scene from his favorite, TV, BB, his favorite TV show on BBC called The League of Gentlemen. I've never seen the show, but I'm intrigued to find out what the scene is all about. He actually wanted people to laugh at his funeral, not cry, and he got his wish. One fellow I heard about had a mom who wanted to be buried with a fork in her hand. And at the funeral, people kept asking him hey, what this meant. She's sitting there in a coffin with a, with, a, with a fork. And the son said, well, mom said that the potluck dinners that they used to have at the church were uh, special to her. And uh, when they would so come along and pick up the trays from the main meal, they would always say, hold on to your fork. Because that meant that dessert was coming. And as wonderful as the main meal was, Something even more spectacular, delightful was headed her way. So she said, I want to be buried with the fork. She was a Christian. She goes, I know that something even greater than what I've experienced here in life is coming. As a Christian, she knew assuredly that it was hers, even though she had not actually seen it. See, the, the joy of our salvation is not merely that we are saved, but it flows from the certainty that we are saved. As the slide indicates, not everything we think is secure really is. But Paul's going to make the case today as he starts to do this that we can actually sing about now where we're going to be then because in Jesus Christ we really are there in a sense. Where the head is, the body will follow. Uh, if you were in church when you were a kid and you sang hymns, um, you might have noticed that none of them began with maybe or I sure hope so or perhaps. You know, maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not. That's not too joyful, is it? It doesn't make a lot of joy that you could somehow think you're saved or have salvation and then somehow lose it. Well, Paul delves into a lot of this stuff this morning. Uh, if you're truly saved by faith in Jesus Christ, can you lose it? Can you, as some of my Baptist friends back in Indiana believe, that if you sin right before you die, you end up going to the bad place where you are barefoot and the floor is littered with Legos, right? So the context of our message this morning is this. Paul has shown us already through the book, the last couple of chapters, that we're not saved by our good deeds or trying to be nice and moral, uh, but by the crediting to our accounts of Christ's righteousness to us as a gift because of our faith in him alone. And Paul has been going through the life of Abraham, the father of the Jews, father of the Israeli nation, to kind of show that Abraham was declared to be righteous by God. Uh, it wasn't something that he earned. It was something that he believed when God said, I'm going to promise to send a, a person through your line that's going to take care of sin. So, if funny is really the opposite of unfunny, 
and nothing else, then Paul has shown us in chapter four so far that salvation is through Christ, faith in him, and nothing else. Apart from good works, apart from religious ordinances like circumcision or in our day, baptism or communion or last rites, it's faith apart from any works of the Jewish law. Now, we know that Abraham lived 430 years before God gave Moses the Mosaic law. Uh, And if he lived 430 years before that, and he got saved 430 years before that, then it wasn't because he managed to somehow keep this law that hadn't even been originated yet. Just common sense, right? But by the time Jesus shows up, the religious scholars, leaders, had concluded that it was in fact keeping the law and circumcision that is what actually saved you. So Paul's going to deal with that, but he's going to go actually just start going a little bit further than that today. He's going to claim that if salvation comes by faith and faith alone and not really anything that you or I do, then the promise of God to save us is certain or guaranteed. That our salvation is not a maybe because that doesn't rest on us. It rests on the righteousness of Christ demonstrated from his resurrection from the dead that showed that God was satisfied with that sacrifice to pay for the sins of those who would place their faith in Christ. So we're kind of digging into an important aspect of this salvation thing today. Can you lose it if you have it? So here's Paul's argument starting in Romans 4 verse 13. For the promise, Paul says, that we should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness that comes from faith. So what's Paul getting at here? He's already shown us that the Abraham's descendant or see the offspring of Abraham in terms of salvation isn't just a person who is related uh, familiarly or genealogically to Abraham. It's not a physical descendant. Uh, when Paul is talking about a descendant or offspring of Abraham, it's someone who has followed in the footsteps of Abraham in believing by faith God's promise to send a Messiah to take care of their sins. We covered all that last week. So if you missed it, you can get online, see the, see the video with all the slides and stuff, or uh, get the podcast. So this promise to Abraham and his descendants or seed, that is Christians today, is that they would end up inheriting the world. It's kind of a new term. The only phrase that's used, uh, that's the only time this phrase is used in the entire New Testament. So let me just kind of dig into that just a second. Uh, Abraham and his children, the believing Jew, and the believing Gentile, that is Christians, are to be heirs of the world. An heir is someone who is destined to receive an inheritance from their dads, right? At some point, my son and daughters are going to begin to look at all my possessions and wonder when they're going to get those things when dad is dead, how they, what they're going to get. And that's because they understand that they are to be heirs of what I have accomplished and, uh, and gathered. Uh, ton, it's just millions and millions as a pastor. You just put that away, right? But to the Jews, see, the idea of being an heir of the world is contained in the Sermon on the Mount, which we preached on last year. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The Jewish concept saw history culminating in God's kingdom being established on earth. So the hope of the believer, that is anyone who is like Abraham, express their faith in Christ, is that Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to establish an eternal kingdom and we are going to reign with him. And this verse in Romans says that there's a promise of this inheritance that didn't come through the law. Because our salvation is not based on keeping the law. But again, through the righteousness we received by our faith in Christ. So what I want to do is I want to kind of go back, since this, this verse talks about the promise, I want to go back and remind ourselves what it is that God actually promise because Paul's hanging his entire argument today 
on what it was that God originally promised back in Genesis. So Genesis 12, verse 1, here's what the Lord says to Abram. Abram was his original name, meant, uh, you know, what, honored father, exalted father. He changed his name, God did later on, before he had a kid, to father of a multitude. Kind of a funny name for a guy walking around, hey, I'm Abraham, father of, father of a multitude. How many kids you got? None. Weird, weird kind of thing going on. But here's what the Lord says to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So God's going to give Abraham land. We discover later in Genesis that it was the land of Canaan. God goes on. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So what's going to go on in the land? Well, somehow from Abram, there's going to be a, a nation that gets spawned and uh, this great nation God's going to bring about. Uh, it's pretty remarkable, really, when you think about it, that God is promising this to a guy who's 75 years old and a guy who's married to a woman, Sarah, who's 75 years old. And at this point in time, none of them have ever had kids. So God is seeing what he's going to do that Abraham and Sarah have never been able to manufacture. And frankly, they're past they're past the point of no return on that. So it'd be pretty miraculous if they were to have had a kid at 75. But that wasn't God's plan. He was going to make them wait 25 more years before this couple gave birth to Isaac. And then from that, the nation of Israel grows. Now on the screen is a woman by the name of Dawn Brooke. She's a British mom. She is 69 now. But 10 years before this picture was taken, she and her husband had what is now in recorded history, the, she was the oldest woman ever to have a child naturally at 59, right? Uh, she basically kept that a secret from the public for 10 years so the kid would not have all this publicity surrounding him. The next photo is interesting. There we go. It's Dalyinder Kaur. She's an Indian lady. Uh, she and her husband had IVF treatments for two years, and she was able to give birth at the age of 70, Nobody passed out. Okay, good. 70. That's pretty weird, right? Um, so she's the oldest person that's had a kid through IVF kind of stuff. So I'm just kind of remarking on, it's kind of interesting that God knew that the miracles of modern science would allow someone to have a kid at 70. But so he, what he did, he says, I'm not going to have you have a kid at 75. I want this to be so spectacular and so miraculous that not even modern science can duplicate it because let's face it, there's been no one that's had a child at the age of 100 from IVF or naturally or anything else, right? So I just thought you'd enjoy God's little trivia. Okay, I know that in 2009, there's going to be a kid born who's at 70. Uh, okay, so I want to make sure that Abraham and Sarah will have to wait till 100 so everybody will know I was involved in this thing with Isaac. Okay, verse 3, God goes on in Genesis 12. He's going to show that uh, this blessing is going to come. It's not going to be just for Abraham and his family, but for the whole world. He says this, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what God is going to do with Abraham somehow is going to end up being a blessing to the entire world, all the families of the earth. Well, who, who are the families of the earth? Well, I, it includes all of us, right? African, Asian, European, Hispanic, everybody. Through the Jewish nation, Jesus Christ is going to come, and the intention of God from the very beginning was he's going to bless every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, if we go from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, which is seven chapters after Abraham, by faith, is declared righteous because of his faith in what God says he's going to do with this Messiah. Here's what God says. 
Not only am I going to save the Jew, the seed of Abraham, but in Genesis 22, I'm going to give the world airship, something that someday is going to be run, not by the Babylonian, the world's not going to be run by the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or the Assyrians. It's going to be this offspring that's going to come through the line. He says this in 22. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring, plural, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Again, remember, all these promises being made to Abram are hundreds of years before God gave Moses the law. These promises are based exclusively on Abraham's faith. So notice this. In the first sentence, we see that Abraham's offspring multiplied, plural. There's going to be a lot of offspring. But in the second sentence, the offspring is not plural, it's singular. And whoever this offspring is to be is going to rule. He's going to possess the gates of his enemies. And it's in this particular offspring that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So you see kind of where Paul is headed. It was faith alone in this Messiah that launched Abraham into receiving these promises from God. There were no works involved, no circumcision, no law, faith alone. And all Paul is doing in Romans is actually going back and recapturing all the Old Testament theology that it was faith in Christ alone that results in the fulfillment of all the promises of God for salvation in the Old Testament. So I mentioned the singular offspring there. Let's dig into that for a second. I want us to zip over to Galatians and take a look at something in Galatians. Uh, Because Paul gives us revelation about this that we wouldn't have just specifically from the Old Testament. Uh, And it's real clear because God's going to make it really clear through, through Paul. A little background on Galatians might be helpful for you. The reason Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians and all the churches there was because new Christians in Galatia and the churches there were being told that simply having faith alone in Christ, not enough. You think you're saved, but you're really not. What you need is uh, on top of, I mean, it's okay to be, have faith in Christ, but you've got to add to that faith in Christ. You've got to keep the law. You've got to keep the dietary codes. You've got to be circumcised. It's faith in Christ plus all this other stuff. Now, so I hope you begin to understand so far that if you start adding in the wrong ingredients to the faith alone recipe, it actually completely undermines the whole concept of faith. And it undermines your security or your guarantee in your salvation. It's kind of like you're being told, well, you can get on this aircraft if you want. But there's a 90% chance this aircraft is going to blow up during your flight. First of all, would you get on? Secondly, if you did get on, how how much joy would you have that you're you're planning to go from your destination to the new destination? Not a whole lot of joy. Not if there's a 90% chance that at any moment you're going to be blown to smithereens. No one's going to watch the in-flight movie, I don't think, because who could focus on that? So these people in Galatia were hearing that you're saved and going to heaven, but there's a really good chance, really good chance, that you're going to lose it. It can slip through your fingers. Well, why would that be the case? Well, if salvation depended on them keeping all the Jewish law, there wasn't just a 90% chance of failure. There was a 100% chance of failure. Because we've already learned in the book of Romans that the law was not given so that we would try to keep it and earn our salvation. But to show us that we cannot keep it, that we are sinners, and we have no chance unless somebody comes in and saves us. So Paul is trying to straighten out this wacky confusion that showed up. He goes, basically, I beg your pardon. Beg your pardon. It is not Christ and the law. It's Christ alone. Starting in verse 15, Paul starts to lay out some really amazing 
logic. He says this. I know that I'm right, he says, because I'm going to give you a human example to kind of make sure you understand what's happening in the spiritual domain. So to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one can annul it or add to it once it's been ratified. So Paul's going to use this human illustration to help make a point, bring it down to our, our, our level so we get it. His illustration is this. When, a, when two humans make a covenant between themselves, no one can mess with it once it's been ratified. No one can annul it. No one can add any conditions to it. No one can come in and unilaterally change it. So let's say that you are uh, looking to rent an apartment. And you find one that's available for $1,500. So you go to the landlord and say, I will gladly pay you $1,500 a month for this apartment. And if you and the landlord agree, then you both ratify that covenant, that contract. It's signed. It's dated. It's notarized. Whatever. Now, Now what happens if the landlord comes back in a month and says... Oh, just so you know, I'm writing an additional con- con- uh, condition into the covenant, into the contract. In addition to the $1,500, you also have to do all of the lawn care and the weeding for the entire apartment complex. What would you say? You say, well, no way, no way, dude. That's not what we agreed to. That wasn't in the a contract we signed. And if he says, well, if you, don't, if you don't like my new condition, then fine. Pack up your stuff, be out of here by Friday. Now, if, you, if that happened to you, and you took that person to court, do you think you'd win? Yeah, hypothetically, you you would win. You know why? Because even though it's only a covenant between two people, once it's been ratified, no one can set it aside or add any conditions to it. The landlord is attempting to change the covenant. Now, had you managed to slip in, as this person did, a provision that the landlord had to give you a birthday cake on your birthday, and he signed it, then he's obligated. But guess what? You can't add that provision after it's ratified. So Paul's argument is this. God operates the same way as we do as humans. Once God has given a promise about how you get saved in Genesis, that it is by faith alone, he cannot come in later and add some conditions to that original promise that was, remember, not only made for Abraham, but to all of the offspring that would follow after him that would believe. Jewish believers, Christian believers, uh, Gentile believers. That was a promise that God made. You and all the people that come after you that exercise faith the way you have are going to get saved. And Paul's saying, he can't come in later and change the rules. It's illegal for men to do that. It's also illegal for God to do that. So Paul says in 16. Now these promises, again, were made to Abraham and to his offspring, which you just said. Right? Abraham, in your offspring, in your seed, shall be the nations be blessed. Right? Um, he says this. And then he goes into this thing about oh, the second sentence. The second sentence where it goes singular. He says, he also says this other thing, that your offspring, singular, will possess the gates of your enemies. Salvation, righteousness of Abraham to his offering. But watch this. It doesn't say, Paul says in verse 16, it does not say, and to offsprings in that sentence. Referring to many. It only refers to one. And to your offspring. And then Paul blows us away. Who is Christ. So who does, who does Paul believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say this singular offspring is, on whom our salvation is based? Who does Paul think it is? It's not the ugly baby on the screen. There we go. Not him. It's Christ. Paul goes all the way back to Genesis and clarifies that the word offspring or seed back there is singular, not plural. In other words, there is one particular offspring who's going to be the person who's going to fulfill the promise that God has made to Abraham and all of his other spiritual offspring. And then God's going to set up all of history 
to make this thing come to pass, to do what God has promised. So God makes this promise to Abraham about 2000 BC that salvation is going to come through this Messiah, this person, this Christ that we know who it is now, right? And salvation would be for all the people who believe like Abraham do through the same path that Abraham followed. It's going to be faith in what this offspring is going to do and nothing else. Not the law, not baptism, not communion, not last rites. And if there's any confusion about that, Paul clarifies it with the next sentence. This is what I mean. The law, which comes 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make that promise void. So Paul's making the point that God cannot change, cannot add to the provisions of all the agreements he made to Abraham and his spiritual descendants that faith comes, that salvation comes by faith and faith alone. It would be as illegal for God to do that as it would be for your landlord to add lawn care and weeding to your contract after it's signed. All right, we may struggle as a nation on what laws we might change to make things better, but Paul is clear. God's law does have a use, but it's not to save anybody. <laughs> Never was. It only shows you that you need saving. God's purpose for the law was to drive us to Christ, your only hope. So this whole idea of faith in Christ and Christ alone is uh, not something that Luther came up with, not something Augustine came up with, not something the reformers came up with. It's not even something that Paul came up with. It's something God came up with and promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. So should there be anybody here who wandered in under the assumption that what Christianity is, is, uh, is people who try to do the best they can, behave themselves, keep the Ten Commandments, I hope we have obliterated that assumption. Now, in verse 14, here's what Paul says happens if you don't happen to buy this. He says this, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So, this is what it means. If you want to add something to the original contract of faith alone in Christ, then number one, you really are not exercising any faith whatsoever in Christ. And number two, the promise that God made is totally voided for you. Why? Because the promise, the covenant, was based on faith alone. Faith places zero interest or faith in you and all faith in Christ. Keeping the law, being good enough, places no faith in Christ and all your faith in you. The two are completely incompatible. I mean, if you're going to try to get there by keeping the law, you have voided the concept of any faith in Christ whatsoever. It's all on you to keep the law. And you don't even need to be in church. Because Christians don't look to the law to have any role in saving them whatsoever. They look to Christ and to faith alone in him. And if you don't want that, then what God is saying is that the covenant that I have made with Abraham doesn't apply to you. You've not signed on to that covenant. You're not party to its provisions or its promises. And since you've made it all about you and what you're going to do, not about faith in Christ, you're going to be toast. Why? Well, Romans 1, 2, and 3. Because we've all broken the law, which is what you're going to put your faith in, you are hopeless. We find this out in verse 15. Paul says, for the law does one thing, doesn't save you. It brings wrath. It brings wrath. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. What that means is the law gives us pen and ink illustrations of the picture of our condition before Christ. The law was intended to drive us to our knees to lead us to Christ. But Paul says for those who try to get salvation by the law, faith is completely canceled. 
and the promise is null and void. If we didn't have the law, we wouldn't be charged with violating it. But guess what? We all know the law. God says the law is written in our hearts, but we also have the law that we know. We've messed up. I have never talked to anybody who said, you know what? I've been, ter- I've been totally perfect my entire life. We all know we have violated it. So at this point, Paul has completely cut us loose from any mooring other than Christ. Verses 1 to 8 of this chapter, being a good enough person won't save you. Verses 9 to 12, circumcision, religious ordinances won't save you. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, church membership won't save you. Church attendance won't save you. And now, even keeping the Jewish law can't save you. Nothing but faith in Christ will do it. Now, verse 16. Now he's covered that. He gets into verse 16. This is why, back to Romans, it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be, interesting word, guaranteed to all his offspring. That's plural. Not only to the adherent of the law, that's a reference to Jewish believers, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Remember from last week, he was saved as a Gentile before he was Jewish, who's the father of us all. If my faith is genuine, if I truly have faith in Jesus Christ, can I lose my salvation? Or is it, as this verse says, guaranteed? Absolutely. The only way a genuine Christian can lose his salvation is for God to change the rules of the covenant, which Scripture says he cannot do. So he would have to sin for that to happen. That's what it would take. See, Christ is the rock on which our anchor is held. Only if that rock gives way is our salvation useless. So can I lose my salvation? Well, it can't be because I've continued to sin after I get saved. I mean, I've already given up that fortress, haven't I? Haven't I, haven't I come to Christ because I know I can't keep the law and I'm going to sin again? But Christ has declared me righteous by faith, not because I've been a perfect person. I haven't arrived at perfection yet. But the good news, my faith, your faith, doesn't rest on how good you've been. It never did. It rests in the sufficiency of Christ. It rests in his death, in his perfection, his resurrection. So can I lose it? Yeah, but only if God's a liar. Only if God changes the terms of the contract. Only if God sins. So it's kind of a moot question. Can we lose it if our faith is genuine? No. It's guaranteed. It is certain. Can we sing about heaven now as if it's ours? <laughs> yeah. Maybe you've talked to somebody and you know they're a Christian and you say, oh, you know you're going to heaven? And you go, well, I sure hope so. That's not piety. Um, it's really an insult. You say, how so, Dwayne? Glad you asked. So, say you're broke and you need some money to pay bills. And I give you a $500 check to pay those bills. I see you a couple weeks later. And I say, hey, how's it, how, how's it going? Everything going okay? Uh, you get those bills paid off? Everything good? And you go, well, no, no, I, did, I, didn't get, I didn't pay those bills. I go, why not? You go, well, I wasn't sure that your check would clear. So I didn't cash them. Is that piety? Or is that an insult? No, the money's good. I earned it. It's not, it's not $100 million. By the way, Meriwether says he still has $100 million. He hasn't spent a dollar of it. So guess what? He's not going to give you anything. But let's say I give you $500. Should you cash the check and pay for them? God says, look, I have given you the righteousness of my son who paid for your sins. Are you going to go to heaven? Maybe. What? Maybe. What do you mean, maybe? Why wouldn't you? Well, I've done some bad things. Yeah, that would be important if it was something to do with you. 
But salvation has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. It has everything to do with Christ. The reason you came to God in the first place was because you couldn't do all you were supposed to do. Are you sure of your salvation? Absolutely. It's an insult to doubt it if you have expressed genuine faith in Christ. We can sing of it and we can sing of it now. The certainty of our salvation is where our joy comes from, right? Even when we have tough times, we can be certain that it is coming. Jesus declared this. Interesting. He said, everyone that the Father has given to me will actually come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. I will raise them on the last day. And everyone the Father has given me, I will not lose one of them. So everything hangs on whether our faith, then, is genuine. And Paul's going to get into that a little bit later in Romans to help us know the answer to whether that's true or not. But if it is real, it is guaranteed. Praise God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this clear annunciation an explanation of why it is that once we place our faith in you, you will not let us go. And no matter what we go through on this earth, sickness, death, hard times, trouble, persecution, we can sing like Paul did. It's as sure as a shooting that we are going to be with you, that you are not going to drop us. You're not going to forget us. You're not going to let us go. And that anything we do has been paid for. Our past, present, and future sins are covered in you. So the main thing is, are we really believers? Have we put our trust in you? Thank you that you're going to share more about that, what that looks like for us, and how our relationship with sin completely changes in the aftermath of coming to you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your death for us. Thank you for the life you've given us. Thank you for the promises that go all the way back to Genesis that we are a party to because the contract cannot be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.